From the Canon Institute, this is the Russia File. I am Maxim Trudolubov. During the past 10 years or so, Russia's relations with the West have been reaching new and new lows. In bilateral terms, no other relationship has been more indicative of that trajectory than the one with Great Britain. The story of Russian-British ties, partnership and animosity is thus important to explore. Joining me to do this is David Owen, a veteran British politician who was active both in Soviet and post-Soviet Russian politics. Lord Owen has just published a new book titled Riddle, Mystery and Enigma, taking a long view of the West's struggles to understand Russia. I will try and start with a very, very basic and impossible question of why do you think the relationship between Russia and Britain has been so difficult? Yeah, I think I regret that, but I agree with the assessment. I think it is one of the worst that Russia has. Of course, it has many different elements within it. One is that we caught their spies poisoning Litvinenko. And we also caught their spies in Salisbury. So we, there is an added factor now, unfortunately, which makes she's unresolved. And that is they're responsible for the death of a completely innocent woman in Salisbury. So this has not made life easy. When it's just spies, well, you know the Russian view on spies. It's, uh, they're entitled to kill them. And they claim, President Putin, that he has that authority from the Duma, who's passed the legislation for it. Anyhow, spies is a difficult world, and a different world. And you have to treat that differently. But you can't gloss over the death of an innocent civilian in Salisbury. And that could easily have happened in Germany when Navalny went to Germany, still suffering from poisoning, and it, it, others could have caught his infection. So it, it is a very, very troubling issue. We've seen the use of Novichok in Britain and polonium, and this has got to be resolved. But it won't be resolved by not talking to each other. Those are pretty recent events. But if we look at a larger picture, can you imagine a world in which Russia and Britain would be actually allies? I don't think now we would ever is a long word to use, but it would take some time to restore the relations between Russia and Britain, which were at their height, really, during Yeltsin's period in office. And Yeltsin never forgot that after he'd been on the top of the uh, tank, the first person to come out fully in support of him was John Major, the British Prime Minister at the time. And in France, the president hedged his bets. In Britain, we came out clearly for him. He never forgot that. He mentioned it to me when I saw him. And it went deeply into him, his soul, if you like. But we supported him. And that was a good relationship. And he came to this country, and uh, I think we had as good a relationship as probably any of the Western democracies with him for all of his period in office, really. I mean, we had our differences and problems with him as he became iller. But underneath it all, I think many people in Britain, not necessarily Russian specialists, thought Yeltsin had made the real change. He'd given up communism, and some of his economic changes turned out to be ill-advised, in my view. But you understood why he wanted to dismantle prices so quickly and why he wanted to move in a market economy, because he wasn't totally confident he could stay in power, that the communists could come back. And he wanted, undoubtedly, to make these radical changes 
and gave extraordinary power to the young team of economists he had around him, in particular the then Prime Minister. So, uh, I mean, these are my views, but I think they are broadly shared by British people. Gorbachev was good news overall, but he was never going to give up his communism and never give up, really, his past. And there you come to the whole question of wither Russia, and I still think that we need to ask that question, and that's going to be one of the real issues now over the next year or two with Russia, and in my view, it will be independent. I don't think Russia will get absorbed into China, although their relationship will improve. Well, that's probably far-fetched to think that China needs to absorb Russia. China has ways of getting what they want without conquering or absorbing. I think things have greatly improved, and greatly improved by their extraordinary negotiation over their common boundary, which was a hell of a diplomatic achievement, really, to over the few years that they took to do it, to navigate all the problems on water and on land that they had with that. So I don't underrate the, uh, either the importance of the improved relations which undoubtedly exist between Russia and China, but I also think that Russia will remain what it always has been, a country passionately nationalistic, and uh, that won't shift. I would like to discuss that because I don't think that Russia is actually nationalistic, probably more like statist or something like that, whatever you call that. Well, when we talk about Russia, we talk about their government, don't we? I mean, in shorthand terms, if you ask me, are all Russian people uh, nationalistic? No, I mean, like in most of our countries, a large number of our population are not very interested in politics anyhow, have a deep suspicion of politicians, whatever their colour, whatever their nationality, and try to get on with their own life, by and large. It's a great mistake which politicians frequently make, but everybody's watching their every move, and they're tremendously important. And just as in Britain, you find most people looking after their family, watching their local football club, and actually not lifting their horizons to the capital or what's going on in their parliaments or anything like that. So I've always been a sceptic of thinking that it's better, therefore, to talk about the government and then the people. Well, we can argue about there are certainly nationalistic tendencies amongst the Russian people. And if you've gone through that war from 41 to 45, you'd understand why. Vladimir Putin keeps saying this all the time, that the West has been containing Russia for years, actually centuries. How would you respond to him when he says that You know, Russia is essentially a victim of containment for decades, actually centuries. Let's deal with the one which I think has some credibility when he keeps drawing attention to the fact that the smaller Russian Federation has its opponents, enemies, countries with whom it hasn't got good relations, a great deal nearer than they used to be. And that's a fact. You can't do anything about that. So I I would tend to think that when Russia was... USSR, it had East European countries, many of whom with governments controlled or at least very greatly influenced by the Kremlin. And there was a cushion between NATO forces. And therefore, NATO expansion has, in just straight geographical terms, brought those countries which Russians might see as enemies, and certainly somewhat they do, very close to their borders. That is a serious strategic problem, and you've got to accept that that has a shift and an adverse shift in terms of Russia. So let's concede that argument to President Putin. 
and deal with it. Okay. So just to try and sum it up, so Putin is right. No, I think that this is one of the issues that we have to face up to is the uh, Russian government's view of the Baltic states. And I first encountered it in 1977 when I arrived. Relations were very bad then between Britain uh, because we'd thrown out a very large number of spies and the conservative government and I assume was foreign secretary. So and you, were, first, you were foreign secretary foreign, at the time, right? I was foreign secretary in 77. Okay. I was the first one to go to Moscow for over six and a half years. And when I stepped down off the plane, and I didn't know who would be there at the bottom of the gangway to greet me, and it was a considerable surprise to find Grumiko there. And I drove in with him in the car. You know, the myth that he couldn't speak English. He spoke perfectly good English. He'd been ambassador in Britain for a long time. And as we were going, we went past those, you know, big crosses on the road. Right. And he said to me, you are always criticizing me, he said, for not moving fast enough over mutual and balanced force reductions. This is the reason. <laughs> These tax blocks, well, you know the story, of course, yeah. were marked the point where the nearest... German panzers came to the center of Moscow. So it was very interesting. And he gave me a very rough ride over his interpretation of the Helsinki Final Act. And I think there's pretty little doubt now that he advised the Politburo that signing the Helsinki Final Act would make it much easier to reclaim, or even he was then suggesting, actually in the wording of the Final Act, gave the... Uh, Three Baltic states, then, of course, part of the USSR, permanently into Russia. And I had to tell him in no uncertain terms that was not our interpretation of it. And then later in the uh, visit, he said, do you want to go to the ballet or to a folk song evening? And I said, I've come here to talk to you, so I prefer to have a folk song evening. So we went to this folk song evening, and uh, as I remember it, my interpreter was not there. Anyhow, I was not within sight, so to speak. And when we were on this uh, podium listening to all this folktown music, he started again hammering at me about the Baltic states. And I hammered back, but of course, I wasn't sure of the interpreter's words, which were probably even as strong as his master, if not stronger. Anyhow, it was, it was a, a long argument. And I, ever since, I, it's been in my memory. I went through, I led a parliamentary human rights commission to the three Baltic states very early in 1990, I think it was 91. And that was when I first understood that there was a difference between Yeltsin and Gorbachev. There was a social democrat woman, I think, in Latvia. And I said, talked about Gorbachev being open to arguments and discussions. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, she said, that's not completely wrong. Yeltsin is the democrat, not mm -hmm. Gorbachev. It was quite eye-opening. And maybe I'd missed something or not, but it's that day, those sort of days... The West was very much more favorable to Gorbachev than to Yeltsin, and we hadn't seen beneath the surface of Yeltsin's drunkenness a very much more formidable figure, and in my view, a more intellectual figure, actually, than Gorbachev. I know Gorbachev pretty well over the years, and admire a good deal of what he's done, but my few engagements with Yeltsin are vividly in my memory. Well, you see, Justin, as, a, as an aside, uh, as a Russian, I would say that um, there are few politicians in, in Russian history as unpopular as Gorbachev. It's either neutral or very, very negative because 
Gorbachev is viewed as a person who has been tricked, deceived by the West into essentially giving up an empire for nothing, just to put it bluntly. And I think that's Putin's view as well. No, I have no doubt it's Putin's view, and I have no doubt it's the view of many Russians with some substance to it, to be frank. But I'm going to switch back now and say to you, why did I write this book? I wrote this book to set the conversation about Russia into a much wider context. And I chose nearly 200 years by starting with the Battle of Navarino. And I have a house next door to, well, very near to Pilos, the town where we celebrate every year the Battle of Navarino. And there we go, and we're all laughing and enjoying ourselves, and the national anthems are all played, and the Russians march, and the British march, and flags are exchanged, and you realize, well, at one time we were all great friends, and this was a great battle, and that's why I started there. So we've got to remember that there have been times when Russia has worked well with the UK, and it can happen again, in my view. It will be difficult to get there painstaking, and there'll be setbacks. But what we must not accept from our political leaders is a endless standoff, no dialogue, no understanding. And in that atmosphere, mistakes are made. And some of those mistakes can be very, very dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is that we have this strange relationship that actually dates back centuries, but often ends up being so bitter, which is a shame because... Yeah, this is a changeable relationship. I'm a friend of Henry Kissinger, mm -hmm. and I am extremely impressed by the way he has maintained the dialogue with Putin over many, many years. He doesn't talk very much about it. He's discreet even with his friends about that relationship. But he, the result is he has a very considerable depth of understanding of Putin and probably Putin through him a better understanding than most people credit him with the West. And that sort of dialogue has to be either re-engaged or started afresh. Okay, and I, but I end my book by saying that Boris Johnson, it isn't a question of whether it's wise or credible or anything like that. It is his duty to engage in a serious dialogue with Putin, set over many meetings. There'll be a lot of differences, but there is nothing better than gradually getting to both know and understand. In this current case, we have to say even a word as strong as enemy. Yeah, but here's the question. There's this dialogue. I'm sure that an intellectual, a politician like yourself, an intellectual who may have an interest in Russian politics, in what Putin thinks and how he makes his decisions. But there is this sort of flip side of Russian politics, which one can describe as corruption. Russian politics is not separated from Russia's economy, from Russia's business. And most of the people who are the ruling elites however you describe them, they're also the wealthiest people in Russia. And very often, if you have power, you also have wealth and vice versa. And these things connect and they corrupt Russia's politics. I'm not actually an intellectual. I'm a doctor of medicine, a scientist in the brain. So yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not an intellectual. But I look at people and I look behind people and I write a lot about hubris and about uh, how the ego can get out of control and a variety of different things like that. And of course, I recognize corruption and uh, I had to wind my way through that in some nearly 20 years. I was 
trading steel from a British company in Russia and very closely involved with the developments of Metallo Invest, watching it from fairly close time. So I'm well aware of that. But it is not, for me, a great obstacle in having foreign relations with leaders who are corrupt. There's nothing new about that. I spent most of my time as foreign minister dealing with governments and negotiating with governments, whether in Africa or elsewhere, who are corrupt. Don't give me that. That isn't an excuse for not having a dialogue. And that isn't new in Russia or in many other countries. I believe you deal with what you've got and you bear in mind at all stages that that is part of the structure with which they live. And why if people are corrupt because of money, which is usually the reason, then you must offset it. We know that. The trouble is these people get more and more money and less and less satisfaction. They go on and on stocking up money and realize probably if at ever, at the end of their lives, it doesn't buy them happiness. It's an old aphorism, but it's true. And they have to look for other things. So, yeah, okay, it's corrupt. No question. Very bad. And it has been progressively getting worse. So, so what? So that basically, doesn't stop me talking to them. Okay, okay. So basically, just for me to understand, for example, let's say Germany's approach to dealing with Russia has been markedly different from, let's say, the US way of doing it. The US does sanctions. The US has been for decades trying to stop, I don't know, gas pipelines, for example. And Germany has been supporting that and engaging with Russia through business, mainly in this thinking that creating some interdependency may create a way of, you know, influencing the other side. So basically, uh, am I right to understand it? So let's say that Germany's approach is better, is more productive than the U.S. approach. No, I don't agree at all. In fact, quite the converse. I believe that the German approach on the oil and gas pipeline has been irresponsible and wrong. I think America are quite right to criticize them. And I've given up criticizing because they're not going to change. And with friendship, you've got to be able to say that area is verboten, if you like. Mm -hmm. You're not going to make any progress on it. And you have to understand the circumstances of how that became the mainstream issue of German politics. It started under Schroeder when he was um, head of chancellor for the Social Democrats. And what we didn't realize is that Schroeder was interested in a far greater extent in money than we had understood. And he stepped down from chancellor into the job of chairman of this company that was going to build it. Yes, that's right. It was a very difficult issue for any German leader, particularly Merkel, to deal with. And I just uh, think you've got to accept that. I think it's a mistake. I think Germany has made many mistakes in how it has handled Ukraine. And I am extremely disturbed and disappointed by the Minsk talks, which should never have been structured in that way. And it should have been a much more, what I would call, serious dialogue. And France and uh, Germany hiving off it. Now, it wasn't their fault. The British were disengaged with Ukraine at that time. Neither the Prime Minister nor the then foreign secretary seemed really at all interested. They would prefer to be outside it. And they stood aside, despite the fact we'd signed the treaty of guaranteeing Ukraine's borders and uh, in respect for the fact that they had given up nuclear weapons. 
So we, we have to be blunt about these matters. German policy to Ukraine has not been its best feature of the Merkel government. In fact, I think it's the single most distressing and disturbing area of their policy. There's very little you can do with it, about it if the French and the, and the German decide to go along with that policy. So I, I hope that there'll be a new policy and I, I want a dialogue on a serious basis involving America and involving NATO. And I think Biden is starting the right way. I've got no criticism of Biden's foreign policy at all. I don't jump up on my chair and get excited about Afghanistan. The fact is we had lost in Afghanistan years earlier than the pullout. And the fact they were offered a chance of coming out without their troops being shot at, which is always the most dangerous part of any policy you conduct with the military, retreat. And I didn't think that was such a terrible thing. And a lot of humbug has been spoken about about it in inside NATO. So we have to, of course, adjust to American presidents and we have to live with them. But it's still the bedrock of our policy towards Russia is that we are able to speak to them through the various mechanisms of the NATO alliance. But yes, that was one of my questions. Why do you think Britain was disengaged from the Ukraine situation? Well, it was a pretty awful government, actually, when you look back on it. I mean, I've never been a member of the Conservative Party. I've never voted Conservative in my life. I have no intention of starting. But there was something about Cameron. It was laid back, not really very serious. A politician who had risen too fast and had learned too little on course. And then you had a foreign secretary who for some reason seemed to think the LBGT was a more important policy for foreign, policy, foreign affairs than getting to understand and to be able to counter some of the people who were not wishing as well, including Russia. So I, I don't understand the fact that we were disengaged. We allowed Germany and France and the European Commission to create this policy of the EU-Ukraine Association Agreement or whatever it was, it was a very serious error, the whole document, written, in my view, by far too many people who were too close to one theory of the world. And uh, it produced the reaction which was highly predictable. But, uh, you know, again, taking a sort of a big picture view, in today's world, do you think that Russia still can and will present, let's say, a problem in the sense that from the Western point of view, the West used to have sort of Eastern question, German question. Well, I can try a few theories out on you, and you can resist them if you like. Okay. I think it's a big question, and we ought to ask ourselves. I see Medvedev and Putin experiment, where Medvedev became president and Putin stepped back, as the starting point. Why was it done? Was it only cosmetics, or did it represent a, a feeling of Putin, that he needed an exit and uh, needed to be some arrangement. I don't know. I think if I was a, a serious scholar, I would devote a lot of attention to that relationship. It came unstuck, actually, on a foreign policy issue. Medvedev let through, didn't veto the um, yeah, French-British and a bit US and a bit NATO, but it was basically French-British uh, Libyan policy. In retrospect, Putin's skepticism of abstaining and not uh, vetoing has been justified. That's the first thing you have to say. But it was also a sensible decision for Medvedev to try this out. And we let him down. I mean, he is quite bluntly, we should have understood that that was a brave 
policy likely to be under attack from Putin. And it had to be made to work. And the way to make it work was to use the NATO Russian Council that had been created, Ministerial Council, for just such a thing. You would share information, explain to them our attitudes to dealing with Gaddafi, what we were about. And the trouble is that I don't think that um, either Cameron or Sarkozy really knew what they were about. And it was uh, a mess, as Obama has rightly called it. Obama tried to run it from the rear, and it was a sort of semi-NATO operation. And it was everything that NATO operations should not be. It was uncoordinated. It didn't really include all the NATO membership. And it was an abysmal failure. And we haven't yet begun to learn the lessons from that. So we have Macron talking all about European autonomy and European defense and European army, and hasn't squared up to the fact that France and Britain were basically in default in handling of the Libyan crisis, and we should ask ourselves what was the reason for it. And the reason, of course, was that it wasn't a fully NATO operation. It was not under the control of the Supreme Allied Commander Europe. And anything that runs effectively in NATO uh, runs effectively because it has a clear-cut command and control centre. So these people out there talking about European autonomy can't even provide 2% for NATO's defence are playing around with fire and are trying, perhaps not realising it, to damage NATO with nothing else in its space. And uh, I, that's a very serious issue because all this is done in the open, so it's perfectly obvious what's happening in the Kremlin and they're doing their best, putting people into NATO and various other organisations to try and destabilise relationship. And people ought to know a lot better are playing around, playing games, the very last thing you should do on defence. They're not serious people. And we've got to stop this and stop it quickly. And Biden has got to be very careful about NATO. This is no time for a change in NATO. His most central question is how to handle China. How he handles China is important to us too. And we should certainly help him in every possible way. I doubt myself the way to involve it is to involve on the ground or in, in, in practical terms NATO, but maybe that has to be considered. Certainly NATO has to have a, an attitude to the Chinese question, but the fundamental forum for NATO is Europe, and it's going wrong in Europe, and that's what has to be faced up to now, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. David Owen, thank you for your time. It has been a fascinating discussion. Hope it helps Russia specialists and the general public to fine-tune their perspective of the story of Russian-Western relations. Thank you. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash Kennan.